Chapter 65, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, Chapter 65, Part 2. The military republic of the Mamelukes still reigned in Egypt and Syria, but the dynasty of the Turks was overthrown by that of the Circassians, and their favorite, Barkak, from a slave and a prisoner, was raised and restored to the throne. In the midst of rebellion and discord, he braved the menaces, corresponded with the enemies, and detained the ambassadors of the Mogul, who patiently expected his decease, to revenge the crimes of the father on the feeble reign of his son, Farage. The Syrian emirs were assembled at Aleppo to repel the invasion. They confided in the fame and discipline of the Mamelukes, in the temper of their swords and lances, of the purest steel of Damascus, in the strength of their walled cities, in the populousness of sixty thousand villages, and instead of sustaining a siege, they threw open their gates and arrayed their forces in the plain. But these forces were not cemented by virtue and union and some powerful emirs had been seduced to desert or betray their more loyal companions. Timur's front was covered with a line of Indian elephants, whose turrets were filled with archers and Greek fire. The rapid evolutions of his cavalry completed the dismay and disorder. The Syrian crowds fell back on each other. Many thousands were stifled or slaughtered in the entrance of the great street. The Mughals entered with the fugitives, and after a short defense, the citadel, the impregnable citadel of Aleppo, was surrendered by cowardice or treachery. Among the suppliants and captives, Timur distinguished the doctors of the law, whom he invited to the dangerous honor of a personal conference. The Mughal prince was a zealous Mussulman, but his Persian schools had taught him to revere the memory of Ali and Hussein, and he had imbibed a deep prejudice against the Syrians, as the enemies of the sun of the daughter of the Apostle of God. To these doctors he proposed a captious question, which the casuists of Bokhara, Samarkand, and Herat were incapable of resolving. Who are the true martyrs of those who are slain on my side, or on that of my enemies? But he was silenced or satisfied by the dexterity of one of the Qadhis of Aleppo, who replied in the words of Mohammed himself, that the motive, not the ensign, constitutes the martyr, and that the Muslims of either party, who fight only for the glory of God, may deserve that sacred appellation. The true secession of the caliphs was a controversy of a still more delicate nature, and the frankness of a doctor, too honest for his situation, provoked the emperor to exclaim, Ye are as false as those of Damascus. Moawiyah was a usurper, Yezid a tyrant, and Ali alone is the lawful successor of the prophet. A prudent explanation restored his tranquility, and he passed to a more familiar topic of conversation. What is your age? said he to the Qadi. Fifty years. It would be the age of my eldest son. You see me here, continued Timur, a poor, lame, decrepit mortal. Yet by my arm has the Almighty been pleased to subdue the kingdoms of Iran, Turan, and the Indies. I am not a man of blood, and God is my witness that in all my wars I have never been the aggressor, and that my enemies have always been the authors of their own calamity. 
During this peaceful conversation, the streets of Aleppo streamed with blood and re-echoed with the cries of mothers and children and the shrieks of violated virgins. The rich plunder that was abandoned to his soldiers might stimulate their avarice, but their cruelty was enforced by the preemptory command of producing an adequate number of heads, which, according to his custom, were curiously piled in columns and pyramids. The Mughals celebrated the Feast of Victory, while the surviving Muslims passed the night in tears and in chains. I shall not dwell on the march of the destroyer from Aleppo to Damascus, where he was rudely encountered and almost overthrown by the armies of Egypt. A retrograde motion was imputed to his distress and despair. One of his nephews deserted to the enemy, and Syria rejoiced in the tale of his defeat when the sultan was driven by the revolt of the Mamelukes to escape with precipitation and shame to his palace of Cairo. Abandoned by their prince, the inhabitants of Damascus still defended their walls, and Timur consented to raise the siege, if they would adorn his retreat with a gift or ransom, each article of nine pieces. But no sooner had he introduced himself into the city, under color of a truce, than he perfidiously violated the treaty, imposed a contribution of ten millions of gold, and animated his troops to chastise the posterity of those Syrians who had executed, or approved, the murder of the grandson of Mohammed. A family which had been given honorable burial to the head of Hussein, and a colony of artificers whom he sent to labor at Samarcand, were alone reserved in the general massacre, and after a period of seven centuries Damascus was reduced to ashes, because a Tartar was moved by religious zeal to avenge the blood of an Arab. The losses and fatigues of the campaign obliged Timur to renounce the conquest of Palestine and Egypt, but in his return to the Euphrates he delivered Aleppo to the flames, and justified his pious motive by the pardon and reward of two thousand sectaries of Ali, who were desirous to visit the tomb of his son. I have expiated on the personal anecdotes which marked the character of the Mughal hero, but I shall briefly mention that he erected, on the ruins of Baghdad, a pyramid of ninety thousand heads, again visited Georgia, encamped on the banks of the Araxes, and proclaimed his resolution of marching against the Ottoman emperor. Conscious of the importance of the war, he collected his forces from every province. Eight hundred thousand men were enrolled on his military list, but the splendid commands of five and ten thousand horse may be rather too expressive of the rank and pension of the chiefs than of the genuine numbers of effective soldiers. In the pillage of Syria, the Mughals had acquired immense riches, but the delivery of their pay and arrears for seven years more firmly attached them to the imperial standard. During this diversion of the Mughal arms, Bajazet had two years to collect his forces for a more serious encounter. They consisted of 400,000 horse and foot, whose merit and fidelity were of an unequal complexion. We may discriminate the Janizaries, who had been gradually raised to an establishment of 40,000 men, a national cavalry, the Spahis of modern times, 20,000 cuirassiers of Europe, clad in black and impregnable armor, the troops of Anatolia, whose princes had taken refuge in the camp of Timor, and a colony of Tartars, whom he had driven from Kipsak, and to whom Bajazet, had assigned a settlement in the plains of Adrianople. The fearless confidence of the sultan urged him to meet his antagonist, and, as if he had chosen the spot for revenge, he displayed his banners near the ruins of the unfortunate Subas. 
In the meanwhile, Timur moved from the Araxes through the countries of Armenia and Anatolia. His boldness was secured by the wisest precautions. His speed was guided by order and discipline. And the woods, the mountains, and the rivers were diligently explored by the flying squadrons who marked his road and preceded his standard. Firm in his plan of fighting in the heart of the Ottoman kingdom, he avoided their camp, dexterously inclined to the left, occupied Caesarea, traversed the salt desert and the river Halis, and invested Angora, while the sultan, immovable and ignorant in his post, compared the Tartar swiftness to the crawling of a snail. He returned on the wings of indignation to the relief of Angora, and as both generals were alike impatient for action, the plains round that city were the scene of a memorable battle, which has immortalized the glory of Timur and the shame of Bajazet. For this signal victory the Mughal emperor was indebted to himself, to the genius of the moment, and the discipline of thirty years. He had improved the tactics without violating the manners of his nation, whose force still consisted in the missile weapons and rapid evolutions of a numerous cavalry. From a single troop to a great army, the mode of attack was the same. A foremost line first advanced to the charge, and was supported in a just order by the squadrons of the great vanguard. The general's eye watched over the field, and at his command the front and rear of the right and left wings successively moved forward in their several divisions, and in a direct or oblique line, the enemy was pressed by eighteen or twenty attacks, and each attack afforded a chance of victory. If they all proved fruitless or unsuccessful, the occasion was worthy of the emperor himself, who gave the signal of advancing to the standard and main body, which he led in person. But in the battle of Angora, the main body itself was supported, on the flanks and in the rear, by the bravest squadrons of the reserve, commanded by the sons and grandsons of Timur. The conqueror of Hindustan ostentatiously showed a line of elephants, the trophies rather than the instruments of victory. The use of the Greek fire was familiar to the Mughals and Ottomans, but had they borrowed from Europe the recent invention of gunpowder and cannon, the artificial thunder in the hands of either nation must have turned the fortune of the day. In that day, Bajazet displayed the qualities of a soldier and a chief, but his genius sunk under a stronger ascendant, and, from various motives, the greatest part of his troops failed him in the decisive moment. His rigor and avarice had provoked a mutiny among the Turks, and even his son Soliman too hastily withdrew from the field. The forces of Anatolia, loyal in their revolt, were drawn away to the banners of their lawful princes. His Tartar allies had been tempted by the letters and emissaries of Timur, who reproached their ignoble servitude under the slaves of their fathers, and offered to their hopes the dominion of their new, or the liberty of their ancient country. In the right wing of Bajazet, the cuirassiers of Europe charged with faithful hearts and irresistible arms, but these men of iron were soon broken by an artful flight and headlong pursuit, and the Janissaries alone, without cavalry or missile weapons, were encompassed by a circle of the Mughal hunters. Their valor was at length oppressed by heat, thirst, and the weight of numbers, and the unfortunate sultan, afflicted with the gout in his hands and feet, was transported from the field on the fleetest of his horses. He was pursued and taken by the titular Khan of Zagatai, and, after his capture and the defeat of the Ottoman powers, the kingdom of Anatolia submitted to the conqueror, who planted his standard, Echiatia, and dispersed on all sides, 
the ministers of rapine and destruction. Mirza Mehemed Sultan, the eldest and best beloved of his grandsons, was dispatched to Borsra with thirty thousand horse, and such was his youthful ardor, that he arrived with only four thousand at the gates of the capital, after performing in five days a march of two hundred and thirty miles. Yet fear is still more rapid in its course, and Suleiman, the son of Bajazet, had already passed over to Europe with the royal treasure. The spoil, however, of the palace and city was immense. The inhabitants had escaped, but the buildings, for the most part of wood, were reduced to ashes. From Borsra, the grandson of Timur, advanced to Nike, even yet a fair and flourishing city, and the Mughal squadrons were only stopped by the waves of the Propontis. The same success attended the other Mirzas and Emirs in their excursions, and Smyrna, defended by the zeal and courage of the Rhodian knights, alone deserved the presence of the emperor himself. After an obstinate defense, the place was taken by storm. All that breathed was put to the sword, and the heads of the Christian heroes were launched from the engines, on board of two caracks, or great ships of Europe, that rode at anchor in the harbor. The Muslims of Asia rejoiced in their deliverance from a dangerous and domestic foe, and a parallel was drawn between the two rivals by observing that Timur, in fourteen days, had reduced a fortress which had sustained seven years the siege, or at least the blockade, of Bajazet. The iron cage in which Bajazet was imprisoned by Tamerlane, so long and so often repeated as a moral lesson, is now rejected as a fable by the modern writers, who smile at the vulgar credulity. They appeal with confidence to the Persian history, the Sherefidin Ali, which has been given to our curiosity in a French version, and from which I shall collect and abridge a more specious narrative of this memorable transaction. No sooner was Timur informed that the captive Ottoman was at the door of his tent, than he graciously stepped forward to receive him, seated him at his side, and mingled with just reproaches a soothing pity for his rank and misfortune. Alas, said the emperor, the decree of fate is now accomplished by your own fault. It is the web which you have woven, the thorns of the tree which you yourself have planted. I wished to spare, and even to assist, the champion of the Muslims. You braved our threats, you despised our friendship, you forced us to enter your kingdom with our invincible armies. Behold the event. Had you vanquished, I am not ignorant of the fate which you reserved for myself and my troops. But I disdain to retaliate. Your life and honor are secure, and I shall express my gratitude to God by my clemency to man. The royal captive showed some signs of repentance, accepted the humiliation of a robe of honor, and embraced with tears his son, Mosa, who, at his request, was sought and found among the captives of the field. The Ottoman princes were lodged in a splendid pavilion, and the respect of the guards could be surpassed only by their vigilance. On the arrival of the harem from Borsra, Timur restored the queen, Despina, and her daughter to their father and husband, but he piously required that the Servian princess, who had hitherto been indulged in the profession of Christianity, should embrace without delay the religion of the prophet. In the feast of victory, to which Bajazet was invited, the Mughal Empire placed a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand, with the solemn assurance of restoring him with an increase of glory to the throne of his ancestors. But the effect of this promise was disappointed by the sultan's untimely death, amidst the care of the most skillful physicians, 
he expired of an apoplexy at Akshahar, the Antioch of Pisidia, about nine months after his defeat. The victor dropped a tear over his grave. His body, with royal pomp, was conveyed to the mausoleum which he had erected at Bosra, and his son, Mausa, after receiving a rich present of gold and jewels, of horses and arms, was invested by a patent in red ink with the kingdom of Anatolia. Such is the portrait of a generous conqueror, which has been extracted from his own memorials, and dedicated to his son and grandson, nineteen years after his decease, and at a time when the truth was remembered by thousands. A manifest falsehood would have implied a satire on his real conduct. Weighty, indeed, is this evidence adopted by all the Persian historians. Yet flattery, more especially in the East, is base and audacious and the harsh and ignominious treatment of Bajazet is attested by a chain of witnesses, some of whom shall be produced in the order of their time and country. 1. The reader has not forgot the garrison of the French, whom the marshal, Balkiko, left behind for the defense of Constantinople. They were on the spot to receive the earliest and most faithful intelligence of the overthrow of their great adversary, and it is more probable that some of them accompanied the Greek embassy to the camp of Tamerlane. From their account, the hardships of the prison and the death of Bajazet are affirmed by the marshal's servant and historian, within the distance of seven years. 2. The name of Pogius, the Italian, is deservedly famous among the revivers of learning in the fifteenth century. His elegant dialogue on the vicissitudes of fortune was composed in his fiftieth year, twenty-eight years after the Turkish victory of Tamerlane whom he celebrates is not inferior to the illustrious barbarians of antiquity. Of his exploits and discipline, Pogius was informed by several ocular witnesses. Nor does he forget an example so apposite to his theme as the Ottoman monarch, whom the Scythian confined like a wild beast in an iron cage, and exhibited a spectacle to Asia. I might add the authority of two Italian chronicles, perhaps of an earlier date, which would prove at least that the same story, whether false or true, was imported into Europe with the first tidings of the revolution. At the time Mumpogius flourished in Rome, Ahmed ibn Arabshah composed at Damascus the florid and malevolent history of Timur, for which he had collected materials in his journeys over Turkey and Tartary. Without any possible correspondence between the Latin and the Arabian writer, they agree in the fact of the iron cage, and their agreement is a striking proof of their common veracity. Ahmed Arabshah likewise relates another outrage, which Bajazet endured, of a more domestic and tender nature. His indiscreet mention of women and divorces was deeply resented by the jealous Tartar. In the Feast of Victory the wine was served by female cupbearers, and the Sultan beheld his own concubines and wives confounded among the slaves, and exposed without a veil to the eyes of intemperance. To escape a similar indignity, it is said that his successors, except in a single instance, have abstained from legitimate nuptials, and the Ottoman practice and belief, at least in the sixteenth century, is attested by the observing Busbequius, ambassador from the court of Vienna to the great Suleiman. 4. Such is the separation of language that the testimony of a Greek is not less independent than that of a Latin or an Arab. I suppress the names of Chalcodinales and Ducas, who flourished in a later period, and speak in a less positive tone. But more attention is due to George Franza, 
protovestier of the last emperors, and who was born a year before the battle of Angora. Twenty-two years after that event he was sent ambassador to Amurath II, and the historian might converse with some veteran Janissaries who had been made prisoners with the sultan, and had themselves seen him in his iron cage. 5. The last evidence, in every sense, is that of the Turkish annals, which have been consulted or transcribed by Leonclavius, Popcock, and Cantemir. They unanimously deplore the captivity of the iron cage, and some credit may be allowed to national historians, who cannot stigmatize the Tartar without uncovering the shame of their king and country. From these opposite premises a fair and moderate conclusion may be deduced. I am satisfied that Sherifuddin Ali has faithfully described the first ostentatious interview, in which the conqueror, whose spirits were harmonized by success, affected the character of generosity. But his mind was insensibly alienated by the unseasonable arrogance of Bajazet. The complaints of his enemies, the Anatolian princes, were just and vehement, and Timur betrayed a design of leading his royal captive in triumph to Samarkand. An attempt to facilitate his escape by digging a mine under a tent provoked the Mughal emperor to impose a harsher restraint, and in his perpetual marches an iron cage on a wagon might be invented, not as a wanton insult, but as a rigorous precaution. Timur had read in some fabulous history a similar treatment of one of his predecessors, a king of Persia, and Bajazet was condemned to represent the person and expiate the guilt of the Roman Caesar. But the strength of his mind and body fainted under the trial, and his premature death might, without injustice, be ascribed to the severity of Timur. He warred not with the dead. A tear and a sepulchre were all that he could bestow on a captive, who was delivered from his power. And if Mausa, the son of Bajazet, was permitted to reign over the ruins of Borsra, the greater part of the province of Anatolia had been restored by the conqueror to their lawful sovereigns. From the Irtish and Volga to the Persian Gulf, and from the Ganges to Damascus and the archipelago, Asia was in the hands of Timur. His armies were invincible, his ambition was boundless, and his zeal might aspire to conquer and convert the Christian kingdoms of the West, which already trembled at his name. He touched the outmost verge of the land, but an insuperable, though narrow, sea rolled between the two continents of Europe and Asia, and the lord of so many tomans, or myriads of horse, was not the master of a single galley. The two passages of the Bosporus and Hellespont, of Constantinople and Gallipoli, were possessed, the one by the Christians and the other by the Turks. On this great occasion they forgot the differences of religion, to act with union and firmness in the common cause. The double straits were guarded with ships and fortifications, and they separately withheld the transports which Timur demanded of either nation, under the pretense of attacking their enemy. At the same time, they soothed his pride with tributary gifts and suppliant embassies, and prudently tempted him to retreat with the honors of victory. Solomon, the son of Bajazet, implored his clemency for his father and himself, accepted by a red patent the investiture of the kingdom of Romania, which he already held by the sword, and reiterated his ardent wish of casting himself in person at the feet of the king of the world. The Greek emperor, either John or Manuel, submitted to pay the same tribute which he had stipulated with the Turkish sultan, and ratified the treaty by an oath of allegiance, 
from which he could absolve his conscience so soon as the Mughal arms had retired from Anatolia. But the fears and fancy of nations ascribed to the ambitious Tamerlane a new design of vast and romantic compass, a design of subduing Egypt and Africa, marching from the Nile to the Atlantic Ocean, entering Europe by the Straits of Gibraltar, and after imposing his yoke on the kingdoms of Christendom, on returning home by the deserts of Russia and Tartary. This remote and perhaps imaginary danger was averted by the submission of the Sultan of Egypt. The honors of the prayer and the coin attested at Cairo the supremacy of Timor, and a rare gift of a giraffe or camel leopard and nine ostriches represented at Samarcand, the tribute of the African world. Our imagination is not less astonished by the portrait of a mogul, who, in his camp before Smyrna, meditates and almost accomplishes the invasion of the Chinese empire. Timor was urged to this enterprise by national honor and religious zeal. The torrents which he had shed of Mussulman blood could be expiated only by an equal destruction of the infidels, and as he now stood at the gates of paradise, he might best secure his glorious entrance by demolishing the idols of China, founding mosques in every city, and establishing the profession of the faith in one God and his prophet Muhammad. The recent expulsion of the house of Genghis was an insult on the Mughal name, and the disorders of the empire afforded the fairest opportunity for revenge. The illustrious Hongvu, founder of the dynasty of Ming, died four years before the battle of Angora and his grandson, a weak and unfortunate youth, was burnt in his palace, after a million of Chinese had perished in a civil war. Before he evacuated Anatolia, Timur dispatched beyond the Sihun a numerous army, or rather colony, of his old and new subjects, to open the road, to subdue the pagan Kalmuks and Mongols, and to found cities and magazines in the desert, and by the diligence of his lieutenant, he soon received a perfect map and description of the unknown regions, from the source of the Irtish to the wall of China. During these preparations, the emperor achieved the final conquest of Georgia, passed the winter on the banks of the Araxes, appeased the troubles of Persia, and slowly returned to his capital, after a campaign of four years and nine months. End of chapter 65, part 2